This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. <clears throat> Master Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice. South side us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying high thirst. Like a child of rich birth, we on the bore of this earth. We endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is us and samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our graces, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living, all come from Zazen. Thus, one true samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where the dark paths lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and ask clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two, not three, straight ahead runs away. Our form now being no form, in going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is there without? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Feel free to adjust your posture, change your seats, whatever you need to do for the talk today. Okay, uh, before we get into the sort of what I had in the, uh, uh, for today, I, I want to mention about this return of merit that we just did, you know, the faith in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha brings true liberation. We now return the merit of our chanting to Shakyamuni Buddha, etc. We're returning the merit. Um, merit used to be this big thing in Buddhism, you know. Uh, ancient Buddhists saw this accumulation of merit through good deeds and, uh, and, and clearing the mind. And so over and over again, it's returning it. 
back to the source. So this is the spirit behind this is to just give it all away. Give it all away over and over again. Just whatever we have to give it away. If we can do that without thought, without clinging, without doing it to get results, right? Without thought of reward, without people-pleasing, without all the equations that go in to the mind, right? Give it away. Can we do that? Very difficult. Difficult state to get to. Okay. Enough about that. So, I'm going to start in an unusual place today. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Nainoa Thompson. Nainoa Thompson. N-A-I-N-O-A. Nainoa. Um, he's a... He is a Hawaiian-born um, man who is trained and trains others in traditional Polynesian um, sea canoeing or kayaking. Um, and, and I've been reading about him and just could not help but share with you about this guy and his experience. Nainoa um, began early in his life in Hawaii, learning how to navigate the ocean traditionally. What does it mean traditionally? Traditionally means without compasses, without sextants, without GPS. Uh, right? Uh, the traditional Polynesian way of navigating. Apparently, it's more than 2,000 years old these voyages that they would go on from Tahiti to Hawaii, Hawaii back to Tahiti, uh, 2,400 miles. 2,400 miles. The width of the continental United States in a canoe, sea canoe. Right? Of course, they have sails. How do they find their way? Unbelievable. Um, well, these Polynesian navigators use what they refer to as a star compass. It's not a compass that we might think of. It's, it's not really a compass. But it, instead, it refers to all the knowledge that they've accumulated about the ocean, about the stars, about the sun, the moon. In fact, they... They, they, they do kind of have these markers on the boats. And when they're out to sea, they can take a star and line it up with a particular point on the boat and aim their direction. And as long as they keep those two in line, they know where they're going. But aside from the stars, um, Nainoa says that in that star compass, well, I'll just quote him, he says... In that star, in the star compass, we hold the sun, the moon, the houses of the star during the year, the houses of the star during the month. We hold the ocean waves, we hold the wind, we hold the flight path of birds, 
every single cue, every single cue is put into a framework that you can understand. You can see seaweed, shallow lagoons under clouds, and you can see wave refraction or the absence of waves. He calls this wayfinding. This is the traditional term for Polynesian navigating. He described um, in this book, he described his greatest fear. And his greatest fear was entering this part of the ocean near the equator called the Intertropical Convergence Zone. The Intertropical Convergence Zone. This is a part of the ocean, again, just near the equator. It's about 300 miles wide, and it is where the east trade winds and the west trade winds kind of converge. And when they do, it (laughs) creates the most tumultuous weather on the planet. It's like the cloudiest place, the rainiest place on the planet. And to sailors, traditionally, this is known as the doldrums, this area. Sometimes there's no wind. Sometimes it's just no wind no cl- and, and all clouds. So he said that because of this fear of his, he overstudied the stars. He overstudied the stars in order to hope that this knowledge of his would get him through this area in the ocean. Um, he, it's not unusual to get a break in those clouds and see one or two stars. And of course, with one star, you don't know what you're looking at, right? You have to have a pattern. You have to be able to see what you're looking at. You have to recognize a pattern. But he said that on this journey he took back in 1980, he did a solo trip from Hawaii to Tahiti by himself. No GPS. He said he found himself on a cloudy night in that area and he got confused. He didn't know which direction he was heading. Can you imagine? Not knowing where he's going. But something in him shifted at that point. Remember, he was studying. He was. He had been training in this for years. And he said that something kicked in for him. And he sensed the moon before he saw it. And he turned his canoe in the direction that he knew he needed to go in relationship to where the moon was or where he thought it was in the sky. And it turns out he made the right decision. And again, another quote from him, he said, I can't explain it. There was a connection between something in my abilities and my sense, my senses that went beyond the analytical, beyond seeing with my eyes. It was something very deep inside. Before that happened, I relied on math and science because it was so much easier to understand things that way. I didn't know 
how to trust my instincts. My instincts were not trained enough to be trusted. That night, I learned there are levels of navigation that are realms of the spirit. Hawaiians call it na'u. I probably butchered that. Knowing through your instincts, your feelings, rather than your mind. It is like new doors of knowledge open up and you learn something new. But before the doors open up, you don't even know that such knowledge exists. And at this point, he was truly wayfinding. So the question, question becomes, what, is all, what does all this have to do with Zen, with Zen practice? When we first begin a practice like this, it's not unusual to stay close to the shore, to keep sight of the island, to keep the island of self as the primary point to look back to, the primary reference point, this island of self. This practice in the beginning is perhaps more about training our nervous systems to calm down, getting some space in our lives, getting some bearing, perhaps getting some distance from our you know, negative thoughts, the automatic negative thoughts that come up. But at some point in our practice, we, our systems do get sufficiently calibrated. They get calm. They get oriented. We get some practice at letting go of thoughts. We get some practice at the ability to stay focused and concentrated, you know. We get some ability to work with our distractions. And at that point, some of us have the urge to go out to sea. There's a quote by André Gide, French philosopher. He said, you can't discover new lands unless you consent to let go of the shore. Zen is really about uncovering who and what we are. And, you know, this is going to put us up against places that are difficult if we really do the work. I'm sorry to tell you that there's not really a way that I know of to avoid that. And it can be confusing. It can throw up a lot of doubt. Sometimes we can feel lost or discouraged in our practice. To me, it's like finding yourself in the intercoastal or the intertropical convergence zone. Cloudy. No guide. No signs to look to. Why? You know, this is... This is... um, This process of Zen sitting is really 
it's really about getting past this limited sense of me. But in order to see what's beyond that, we have to let go of the shore. In fact, some people practicing uh, might be asked by their teacher to let go of the shore. It might, there might come a point where we stop getting what we, the kind of support that we might want that helps us hold to the shore. And we may um, be asked instead to begin to find our own way with practice. Zen, in essence, is wayfinding. In other words, it's, it's about opening up all of our senses, all using everything, so to speak, in our star compass that we may, uh, to find our way. And at some point in practice, you may find that your internal compass begins to take over where you don't rely necessarily on um, the old instrumentation that you're used to. But this takes a tremendous amount of trust. I want to share with you a little Zen story that gets at this kind of way of practicing, this, this trusting it's it's a very short, um, but it's it's a very potent vitamin. It's very potent. It goes like this: Master Chizo, who is a ninth um, uh, century uh, Zen teacher, he Master Chizo asked Hogan, a student. Where have you come from? And Hogan said, Well, I'm on pilgrimage wandering. And Chizo then asked, Well, what's the nature of your pilgrimage? And Hogan replied, I don't know. At that, Master Chizo said, Not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. This is actually taken from a longer version of a story. Apparently, the reason he found himself, Hogan, at um, Chizo's monastery was because there was a snowstorm, and they were pilgrimaging around, and they got stuck because the snow was quite deep. And there's another version of the story. In this first version that I just read, Chizo um, says, not knowing is most intimate. And Hogan has a realization at this point. Something in his mind shifts and opens. But in this longer version, actually that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Instead, they, 
wait out the snowstorm, and when it clears, Chizo shows Hogan and his traveling companions to the gate, and he's... Um, Chizo had heard these guys talking while they were staying at the monastery. They were apparently talking quite a bit about Zen philosophy. And one of the things uh, I think they were saying, I don't quite remember exactly the wording, but something about all things being mind. Everything is mind. And so Chizo, showing these guys to the gate, about you know showing them off, have a good trip kind of thing, he sees this big boulder near the gate. And he says, well, I heard you guys talking. And, and you, guys, you guys said that, you know, that everything is mind. That it's all consciousness. So let me ask you, is this boulder, this rock, inside your mind or outside your mind? And... Hogan says, he didn't have much of a choice right at this point, he says, it's inside my mind. And at that point, Chizo said, well, how are you going to carry that heavy rock around on your pilgrimage? That's going to be quite the weight. And at that point, Hogan, or Hogan had no idea. And so he actually dropped his bags and he said, can I study here? Completely open. Because he wasn't clear on the Dharma. And the story goes on from that. He said that, it says that every day, Chizo would talk to Hogan. And every day, he would ask him what his view of the Dharma was. And Hogan would give his view, and Chizo would say, it isn't like that. It's not like that. And every day, Chizo, or Hogan would go back to his room. And then the next day, he would ask him his view. It, the Dharma isn't like that. So finally, after a long time, Hogan comes to Chizo and he says, I have no more ideas. <laughs> I have nothing to say. I've come, I've run, I think he says, I've run out of words. Good. <laughs> Good place to be. Good place to be, right? And so at this point, Jesus said to him, if you want to talk about what your true nature is, the truth is that everything you see is your true nature. And at this point, Hogan had an awakening. His mind was, you could say, like tinder. It was dry. It was ready. It was prepared for this spark. His mind was open. He had gotten past this his normal way of knowing. But going back to this original story where he's, Jizo says, not knowing 
is most intimate. In Zen, we talk about not knowing. And there are basically two kinds of not knowing in Zen. Not knowing. They're not, it's not, we're not referring to this not knowing as in I don't have the answer in the conventional sense. What kind of not knowing are we talking about? Well, one is this state of mind that we can all enter into when we sit. When the mind gets quiet. When there aren't a lot of ideas that are coming out, coming up. This can be a very nice state of mind. It can be very quiet, very open. This is the kind of state of mind that Hogan was in in this first part of the story when he says, when Jesus asks him, what was the nature of your pilgrimage? And he says, I don't know. This is his mind state. He's so involved, he's completely lost in his practice to the point of not knowing. But the mistake that a lot of people make is thinking that this is the end-all, be-all of Buddhist practice, is to empty the mind, is to get to the state of clarity, of quiet. But this would be a misunderstanding We can, we can look to, um, we can look to the, do you remember the dialogue between Emperor Wu and Bodhidharma? Does anybody remember that? Remember, Bodhidharma goes to Emperor Wu and he's very proud of all the things he's built, all the accomplishments he's done for the Buddhist community and he's looking to Bodhidharma for confirmation of this and Bodhidharma just won't give him what he's looking for. Finally out of exasperation the emperor says to Bodhidharma who are you anyway? And Bodhidharma says I don't know. I don't know. Most of the time we're so set in who we are. But what is the experience? What is Bodhidharma saying? What does it truly mean to not know who we are? You see, when we... In our normal way of being is to define ourselves actually by who we are not. Right? If you think about it. I'm not you. I'm not you. I'm not this. I'm not the road outside. I'm this. This is who I am. So we usually define things by what they're not. But what happens when we get to the place in practice where we realize that those boundaries are false? Where we realize that we are this. 
Do you see how then it becomes really difficult to say who we are? Do you see? This is what, this is what Jesus says, this is what Jesus means when he says, not knowing is most intimate. To be truly intimate with all things, not separate. I just want to I want to close up with today with this little to give you just a little sense of of Chizo a little more because he went on to actually begin teaching and to read some of the uh, stories are very fun so apparently he was chosen to be the abbot of a particular monastery and he was sitting in his room the day of this ceremony that was supposed to happen. So there were a lot of people gathered around. A lot of people came to the monastery to hear and to see this installation, this abbot installation ceremony, and to hear him speak. And so he's in his room sipping tea, and one of the monks in charge came in to remind him, said, everyone's gathered. They're waiting on you. He said, they're all gathered around your Dharma seat in the hall to hear you speak. And Jesus, so Chiso says, in that case, all those monks are practicing with a genuine worthy. In other words, the empty seat. Practicing with a genuine worthy. So after a while, Chiso agreed to leave and go into the hall, and he took his seat. And a monk said, everybody's here. Can you please expound the Dharma? So Jesus said, since all of you are assembled here, I can't say nothing at all. So I'll give you a couple of words. Take care. And then he left. Take care. Okay. We have a lot of time left. Not a lot, but some. What's, what does this bring up for you? Anything? Could be all complete nonsense. Complete confusion. But I welcome your thoughts. I guess not knowing ourselves. 